matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there on this very somewhat cold, but it's getting better. We're almost done through February. Well, I'm the optimistic guy here. I'm Dr. Peter Sacco, and welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. Uh, myself and Todd Miller, who is my co-host and producer. So, Todd, what do you think? Deep freeze almost over? You speak truth. We are closer to March than we are January, I guess, if, if you want to put it that way. Well, today is the 18th, correct? So, yeah, deep freeze, I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of hoping. I posted a picture of my backyard uh, earlier this year on Facebook from last summer where it was a nice summer day. And I thought, you know, we're, we're pretty close to that. At least that's what I felt. But uh, then we get back into this dreaded weather. But, hey, it's Canada. What do you expect? You know what? And actually, you know, this is a debate. For anybody listening, you can maybe go on with this debate. You know, is this winter worse than last year's? In the absolute, my opinion, no. We had a deep freeze basically from, I remember, New Year's Eve where we got this dumping on down at least in the Niagara region and freezing. And it never warmed up at all, at least until March. So we've had some meltdowns throughout this winter. And, you know, it's two weeks, two, three weeks of chill. Big deal, eh? We got March just around the corner. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if we've mentioned this before on the show, but last year we had that that permafrost. I mean, we had the ice storm before Christmas, and then it just sunk in with the cold. And literally, I mean, I think I was still chipping ice away from my driveway in March or April. It was just that bad. Absolutely, and you know, when we look at this here, like big deal. It's almost over. And you know what? I guess, you know, being the optimistic person that I am, um, what difference will this make about six weeks from now? You think? <laughs> No, we'll just be going, remember that bad winter we had? Well, we're out of it, and we're into uh, into spring. Absolutely. And you know what? And the fun part is, is Easter is actually early this year, April 5th, I believe. or Yeah, April 5th. So, you know, this is, they say, that once you get to Easter, you know that spring is 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt here. So guess what, folks? Once we get to the real uh, benchmark Easter, it's all good from there on. And I think we're going to have a really warm, warm spring. Let's hope, okay? Yeah, and we'll that, kick that seasonal affective disorder to the curb. And Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, Todd? I really do uh, preach this, talk about it quite a bit. Seasonal affective disorder, folks, for those of you that have it, and this is why you know we're trying to be positive and optimistic here, it's just about over. And a lot of people, Todd, do have it right now. This is where, they're, you know, how you have the dog days of summer. Well, this is, you know, the, what would they, how would they, they call it? You know, um, old man winters, you know, cranky days or something like that. This is what it is for people with seasonal affective disorder and the winter blahs. It's, yeah, I, and I can relate, folks, especially when you're getting the barometric pressure changes with the cold temperatures, you're getting these headaches, you feel cooped up. And then lo and behold, the kids are going to be home from school in a couple of weeks for a break and all this stuff. So I, I see and I, I feel your pain, but it's almost over. Yeah, I think, you know, the first two weeks after Christmas, you know, into the new year, you're still feeling the, the Christmas joy. And then the bills start rolling in and the days get shorter and it just, ugh, 
you know, it's just, there's no joy. It just seems to be like, I think that's part of the reason why they, in Canada and Ontario, at least that I speak of, they've uh, implemented this family day, that that mandatory day off where we all get to spend time with our family, whether we want to or not. Well, everybody should be really happy. It was just Valentine's Day this weekend. And for all of you huge fans of Fifty Shades of Grey, your dream came true. It came out on the big screen. Did you go see it, Todd? I have not seen it. And we actually had a, a show and I'm going to, push the podcast back out there because we talked about it last year and uh you know i think the jury's out some women loved it and there were a lot of bad reviews about the movie and even women are saying the guy was miscast it wasn't quite as uh as erotic as the book again women not to generalize women tend to use their imaginations more and are more uh visceral thinkers where men need to see things uh, and i think maybe it was a bit of a letdown for some women and you know what, Todd? I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday, very close to me, who she is a huge fan of the books. She read them, and she keeps saying, Pete, that should be on your bucket list for reading nonstop. And then she said, you're going to go to the movies with me and just go as a nonpartisan individual and not be judgmental. And I said, you know what? Part of the problem is with a book like that is it, as you say, Todd, it is based on fantasy, and a lot of it is the fantasy and the putting together visuals within the mind, and you're, you're coming up with a preconceived notion on how you want Christian Grey to be, how everything kind of falls into place, how it should go, but then, once again, you're then going to put it on a big screen, and it's just not going to be there because it's not going to match up to probably your fantasical, you know, the fantastical views you had of it. You know, to draw draw a parallel for the guys who are typically more into science fiction, they would probably have read certain books that that were done before they came to movies, and you know, envision what the characters look like, what the scenes look like, uh, and then when it hits the screen, they kind of go, "Hmm, that's not exactly what I had in mind." So, you know, very similar similar parallel there. Absolutely, but I will put this out: being a giant Marvel comic book fan. I can't wait for the Avengers 2 to come out because the first one was pretty darn good. Yeah, I'm, I've got two little guys, five and seven. Might be a little too, you know, too advanced for their for their years, but I'm sure in, in the coming years we'll be seeing it when it hits home video and uh, yeah, it should be exciting. Yep. You know what, Todd? It's all about perception and I guess kind of like how you want to look at something and get the most out of it, which brings us to the total dichotomy of what we're talking about here, um, our guest today, and talk about perception. He's a doctor. In fact, we got a great doctor, one of the leading oncologists at Duke University Medical Center, who himself had a terrifying misdiagnosis which almost killed him. So talk about perception, Todd, especially happening to a doctor. You would think that there's... Um I don't know. I would think within within professions, there's a there's a professional courtesy. So when a cop is, uh, you know, doing something with another cop, there's sort of a professional courtesy. And I would think with physicians, it's very much the same. They're going to go above and beyond to make sure that this doctor in front of them is taken care of because it's it's a fellow. It's a, a, a brother, so to speak. But from what I've been reading, this has just went horrifically wrong for Dr. Neal and ended up in a book. You know what would be interesting, Todd? It's, it's almost like, say that you are a dentist, and you go to another dentist, and this dentist pulls the wrong tooth. How do you, how do you feel as a dentist going to another dentist who botches your tooth? Or we don't even have to go with medicine or dentistry. We can go with 
a, a, a hairstylist who is really good in her field, let's say she goes to another hairstylist and this woman butchers her hair. And I think you are right, Todd. There is, you know, you would expect some sort of professional courtesy, or maybe once again it goes to the perception. Therefore, I'm a dentist, I'm a doctor, I'm a hairstylist. I expect the best, if not better, given the fact that you would want to raise the bar and push out your performance to impress me. You know, when, uh, from my own experience, you know, used to be. Um uh, recording engineer and working in the music field, when I encountered someone else that was of, of a certain stature um, and I was working with them, I would make sure I went above and beyond the call to make sure that, not that I tried to impress them, but that, that I tried to make sure I did my very best so that they felt it was a great working relationship. And, uh, you know, this um, this this thing with Neil is just bizarre. I mean, I can't, you know, mistakes happen. Mistakes certainly happen, especially in the medical profession. We've all heard of doctors leaving tools inside after surgery. But, man, this is horrific, and I just can't wait to hear what he's got to say about it. You really? It's, uh, it reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld, um, you know, where they're watching the surgery take place. Kramer and Jerry, they're eating candies, and the one falls over the uh, the observation deck <laughs> into, the, into the fellow, and supposedly it saves his life. <laughs> That, that's a that's a would we call that a miracle a candy miracle I'm not sure. And you know it's interesting, Todd. It'd be really cool to ask you know Neil when we have uh, Dr. Neil Spector on in a few moments. You know, do you consider the fact that you're you're alive a miracle now after the misdiagnosis, the fact that you are here today? Do you would you consider yourself a walking miracle? Yeah, and also too, I think I want to ask him. You know, was it meant to happen? Do you believe in in fate and this whole process that came out of it, ending up with the book and him now, you know, being interviewed all over the place. Was it meant to be? Was it meant to happen so that he could be either an example or um, a warning to other people about what he went through? You know, I think that's a great perspective uh, you have there, Todd. I think, um, you know, and if you we've had our, our guest last week on the Law of Attraction, uh, Karma Spence in the back in the past, Jack Canfield, the likes of like that that say nothing happens just through accident. It's for a reason, and sometimes these reasons, albeit they be really tragic or bad, um, have a message or set a bar for a new level of how should we put um, quality of life, quality of living. And so when we return. Are a long way to guess. I am so excited to have Dr. Neil Spector, who's going to come on and talk about his new book, Gone in a Heartbeat, which just came out Valentine's Day weekend. <laughs> Made sense on Valentine's Day, talking about the heart. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio, talk-radio.ca. Stick around. We'll be right back. music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Hi there. 
I'm Dr. Peter Andrusacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting, Facebooking, or online dating? Maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind definitely matters to us as it does each and every week. And keep the emails, keep the suggestions for guests on our show coming. You can reach me as always, my um, Facebook you can get me uh, Twitter, and you can get me on my website. And as we teased and promised before we went to break, a guest that I've been waiting to get on my show because I think this guy's amazing, not only in regards to his story, but about who and what he is and does for a living. Uh, we welcome to the show Dr. Neil Spector, who is a leading oncologist at Duke University Medical Center, who, the reason we have him on our show, wrote a tremendous book called Gone in a Heartbeat, which just came out. As we told you, February 14th, this past Valentine's Day, and it deals with a misdiagnosis which almost resulted in his death. So, Neil, I guess we are so happy that you are alive and definitely here to join us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful to be here, so and it's wonderful to join you. So, before we brought you on, Neil, Todd and I were bantering back and forth, and Todd posted a really cool um Proposition of sorts. I guess, Todd, would you like to ask Neil that about courtesy, professional courtesies? We were having a little discussion where we brought up various examples about how there's a professional courtesy in in various professions. Um, If you're a hairdresser and you go to another hairdresser and they know that they generally take a little bit better care of you, they they make sure they go the extra distance. If you you go to a dentist and and you're a dentist, you would think the other dentist would go, I'm going to really be on, bring my A game to this experience so that I'm making sure that a a fellow, a person that is within my profession is kept happy. And then there's your case where there was unfortunately a a doctor or a number of doctors that were involved in your case that perhaps made mistakes. I haven't read the book, but it resulted in in a catastrophe. And I just wanted to know what what your opinion is on that. Um, Well, I... um I guess I've experienced both sides. So I've had, you know, tremendous care, and I'm not sure it was because I was a physician or not. I mean, I, you know, the people who uh, who um, took care of me during the, the transplant were were incredible and superb. Um, and then I had, you know, some folks who I think, um, I, you know, I don't know that they. Uh, I, I, I think part of it is just are people who are are trained to think in a very algorithmic way. You know, they, they really don't take the time to listen to patients, whether you're a physician or not. Um, they, um, they go purely by what test results are and, um, and, you know, and are not sort of the, 
the idea of uh, our image of you know Marcus Welby or that doctor who mm. will sit there and actually listen. So I, I you know when people hear my story, they're actually shocked as as you were saying you know that I'm a physician. Um, and that these things happen to me, and if this is happening to me, God only knows what's happening to you know the rest of uh, the rest of us out there who who aren't familiar with uh, the medical field. And um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I I think in general, um, physicians, and again, I'll just speak for myself that that we take care of and try to do the best we can for whomever, whether they're physicians or shoe salesmen. Um, you know, you would hope that you would hope, in the very least, that people would would listen to you. And I was a bit shocked by the fact that um, I understood the medical jargon and I understood, you know, the um, signs and symptoms of certain diseases. So I would have hoped that people would have listened a little more carefully what I was saying. But um, unfortunately, some of the folks who saw me didn't do so. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a perplex it's a perplexing story, um, and and I think it speaks more to the fact that the medical profession is changing, and there's you know there's less time for physicians to be able to listen to to patients. And to be honest with you, we've become so technical in biomedical research and and medical care that um, you know there's more and more reliance on on lab tests and scans and less and less listening to what people are actually telling their doctors. So Neil, can you kind of, I guess, walk us through exactly the, the start of the, uh, I guess, the problem where, you know, you had the symptoms of where you were living with only 10% of your heart functioning and then you had other complications that then culminated and you only having roughly 72 hours or less to live without a heart transplant. Can you walk us through the whole procedure, so to speak, like, and, and how this all came about? Yeah, so walk you through from the, from the beginning and quickly yeah. just to, uh, sure. So, <clears throat> so my symptoms started, um, my wife and I moved um, from Boston to Miami, um, which, uh, you know, was, was a big culture shock. I mean, going from New England to South Florida. I started having symptoms probably within the first few weeks of moving to South Florida. Uh, my symptoms were initially episodic. Uh, right, you know, my heart would race, uh, and um, you know, racing up to 200 beats a minute. Um, it would come on without doing anything. So you know, you might expect. Okay, I used to. I ran two Boston marathons. I used to run you know 12, 15 miles a day, five or six days a week. Uh, you might expect your heart would be racing, you know, after running 15 miles, but this would just be, you know, sitting in a car, you know, sitting at work, uh, and it would come and go, and it would last, the episodes maybe would last, <clears throat> you know, a minute or so, and so I would, and, and at times I, they would be so, um, you know, scary that I'd drive myself or someone would drive me to an emergency room, and by the time I'd get there, they would have resolved, and you know, I got the same answer all the time. You know, you're healthy, you're in good shape. Um, this is stress. The stress from it's an adjustment stress from moving from Boston to Miami, and um, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with you. So um, this went on and on. It actually went on for for about four years, off and on. I visited more emergency rooms in South Florida than I care to 
you know, care to remember. And for someone who had been incredibly healthy before, as I said, I used to run, you know, 10, 12, 15 miles a day and had run two Boston marathons. I, I knew that this just wasn't stress. I mean, I had been stressed in my life, and I'd never experienced anything like that. So it went on. That went on from uh, 1993 through um, 1997. I, and along the way, I had all sorts of bizarre symptoms that cropped up. I had uh, these uh, incredible, painful sensations in my feet, uh, sort of a burning sensation, so bad that I literally couldn't put my feet down on any surface. Um, <clears throat> I had these night terrors, which I'd never had before, where I, you know, had difficulty sleeping at night. Um, and then what happened in, in 1990, uh, oh, and then I had an episode that's very interesting where I had uh, really severe arthritis. So I'd never had arthritis during the whole course. It was mostly these these uh, cardiac, these heart arrhythmias, these transient episodes of just very fast uh, heart rates that would, you know, resolve as mysteriously as they come on. Um, but I had an episode of uh, uh, very severe arthritis in my wrists to the point where they were swollen and red, and I, I literally couldn't pick up a utensil. And um, I happened to have been prescribed um, doxycycline, which is an antibiotic that turns out to be the drug of choice for Lyme disease. Hmm. And I was prescribed it for a completely independent reason for another um, infection that I had. And within 24 hours, the, the arthritis just completely resolved. I mean, 100% went away. And I thought, you know, this is kind of strange that I, having all these these cardiac manifestations. Now I've got this arthritis that resolves with um, doxycycline. You know, this, this has to be. I was trying to figure out all along for the four years or so that I was being told that I had a stress-related issue, you know, what the underlying problem might be. And one of the things that I kept thinking about was the fact that I, you know, had lived in New England. I used to run a lot. I used to run in the woods. I'd been to Cape Cod. Um, you know, I was having symptoms that were suggestive, perhaps, of, of Lyme disease, although I had never remembered getting bitten by a tick and had never or, or didn't recall having the typical, you know, bullseye uh, rash that people think about. Um, um, as it turns out, those, you know, are often misleading because 50% of people may not have the rash. And um, so anyway, so flash forward 1997, um, I, I now have... Um, a different cardiac symptom, which is just an, a very irregular heartbeat. Um, sometimes it's incredibly slow to the point of, you know, maybe beating 40 beats a minute, which is fine if you're, you know, if you're if you're an elite athlete. Um, but at that point, I really had deteriorated from a health perspective, meaning I was having extreme fatigue. I, I was no longer running, um, and so I didn't think that. I had a heart rate of 40 because I was just in incredible shape. Um, I was still working full time though, and um, uh, you know, and I went to a doctor, and they uh, essentially said, "Well, we're not really sure what's going on, but um, you know, let's just follow this." And uh, it turned out that um, uh, in the summer of uh, 1997. I started having these uh, episodes at night where I would wake up with these this blinding white light that would wake me up from sleep. It was like an, a, an explosion going off in my head. 
um, my heart rate again was very slow with intermittent episodes of, you know, beats of 200 beats a minute, maybe for, you know, 15, 20 seconds. And so I finally went back to my doctor. I'd had slews of blood tests, you know, for the, the four years preceding, um, which really never showed much, although they never even considered Lyme disease. Uh, and so when I went uh, in, in the summer of uh, 1997, I was laying on the exam table and I was getting my uh, ECG recording, uh, my, you know, my heart tracing. And I remember looking over at the machine and, you know, nowadays machines are smart and they're computerized and they can actually give you the diagnosis without even having a cardiologist look at your tracing. And it said complete heart block, meaning the electrical system in my heart was just completely shot. Wow. And I remember the first thing I thought was that that can't be mine. That has to be the, the the person before me whose tracing was stored on the machine, and it must be coming off now for some reason. I just thought that that can't be me. Um, it was me. Um, they put a, uh, a halter monitor on one of those devices that probably a lot of your listeners have had where you wear a tracing that monitors your heart rate for 24, 72, sometimes several days to try to capture what the, the abnormal heartbeats are. Um, and it turns out that my tracing was so abnormal that they put it up in the, the cardiology office as, as an example of several different life-threatening arrhythmias. So in retrospect, what they found was that the, the episodic fast heart rates that I had had were, were not related to stress and were in fact related to a very um, life-threatening arrhythmia called ventricular tachycardia, which is one of the most common causes of sudden death among um, people outside of a hospital that they can develop ventricular tachycardia or VTAC as it's called, um, which can then degenerate into an arrhythmia that just doesn't sustain life. So I could have dropped dead over the ensuing, you know, from 1993 to 1997 um, at any one of the, you know, hundreds or thousands of episodes that I'd had during that time. And, you know, I guess, but for the grace of God, go I that I that I didn't. Um, the blinding white lights that were waking me up from sleep and the explosions that I was having turned out to be pauses of six seconds between heartbeats, which is like an eternity for your body not to get oxygen. So essentially, my blood was being deprived of oxygen for six seconds, and the blinding white light was essentially the response from the brain to you know, being hypoxic from not getting oxygen. So I had a, um, a pacemaker put in initially to regulate my heart rate and get it back up, you know, to a normal rate of, of 70 beats per minute because my heart, so essentially the wiring in my heart was shot. Um, the function at that time was normal, so the pump function was normal, but the wiring was just not maintaining a normal heart rate. So I had a pacemaker put in um, a few weeks after the pacemaker was put in, and I was told at that time that that would solve my problems. They, they still didn't consider Lyme disease um, at, at that time. I requested a blood test be sent for Lyme disease because one of the manifestations of Lyme disease is, is complete heart block. Um, and I started you know, recanting the story that I had, which is I've got this, this unexplained heart condition. I mean, here I am, somebody who had been 
you know, the paradigm of health. I had no family history. You know, I never smoked. I, you know, took a baby aspirin every day. I had a little white wine every once in a while for medicinal purposes. I ate good. You know, I mean, I, I was not somebody who should be having complete heart block at the age of, uh, you know, 40, uh, whatever it was, 40 years old. Um, and so, um, they, and I said, I want this blood test sent off to a major medical center in the Northeast because I didn't trust that the people at the University of Miami, since they kept telling me, well, we don't see Lyme disease in Florida and we've never seen it. We don't understand it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that was, that, that was not confidence building mm-hmm. for me. So I had it sent off to a, a reputable university center in the Northeast that, you know, is in an endemic area. Um, and we waited for the test. The test came back. I didn't really see the tests at the time, so this was right around the time they were going to put the pacemaker in, in July of, of uh, 1997. And I remember my cardiologist coming in and telling me, well, your test is negative. Unbeknownst to me, the test was actually was positive, although it wasn't completely positive, you know, in the true um, sense of every little box being checked. Um, it, it, and I can describe the complexities of, of Lyme disease testing, which is a nightmare, frankly, mm. for tens of thousands of people out there who are, who are probably being told they don't have the disease and really do have the disease. Um, in any event, I had I um, had the pacemaker put in because I was under the impression that this was not Lyme disease. Several weeks later, I had a, a prolonged episode of ventricular tachycardia, meaning as opposed to the prior four years where they would last the episodes for 30, you know, 15, 30 seconds and then go away. This one just persisted for 30 minutes. And uh, my wife drove me to the emergency room. Uh, I'll never forget that I I was out walking. I was trying to get back in shape after I had the pacemaker put in. Um, And in the middle of the street, I suddenly, my heart started racing at 250 beats a minute. And I knew immediately that it was ventricular tachycardia, and I knew that I was either going to drop dead right then and there, or I wasn't. And so um, after realizing, and it was a funny feeling, Peter, I'll tell you this, because it's one of several sensations that I write about in the book, that as a scientist, um, you know, I've done basic science my whole professional career, in addition to clinical oncology, and I've you know, trained at the best centers, and I've learned the scientific method to be inquisitive and, you know, and to to do experiments to try to come to the answer of things. Um, But as I stood in the middle of the street there, realizing that I could drop dead at any second, I had this incredible feeling of warmth and protection that suddenly came over my body as, as if I was being hugged. And, and I will say that I believe it's, it was divine intervention or you know a guardian angel because that's exactly what it felt like. And I have no explanation for why I should have felt so calm and peaceful um, and, under, and having an understanding that I would be okay in a minute where I, where I should have felt pure terror, especially as a physician <clears throat> who understood exactly what was going on. And so I calmly <laughs> walked over to a neighbor and said, you know, I need you to drive me home. This is an emergency. Don't panic. <laughs> I, I walked in the house, you know, with my heart racing at 250 beats a minute, and I calmly told my wife, let's get in the car. We're driving to the emergency room. <laughs> we got there. Um, 
they ended up putting a defibrillator pacemaker in, you know, something that could actually shock you from the inside of your body if you, if, in order to terminate the, uh, the arrhythmia. Um, just like you see in the movies when somebody has the same arrhythmia and everyone stands around and they put the paddles on the chest mm-hmm. and they say clear and then they deliver a shock. Well, it's the same thing, except the paddles were wires and they were inside my chest directly linked to my heart. So when I would get that arrhythmia and I was shocked several times, uh, you know, over the next 11 years, um, sometimes in front of my family, uh, which was pretty terrifying, sometimes three times in a row. <clears throat> the first time I got shocked, I was uh, I was in the airport in Newark, New Jersey. I had flown up about six months after I had the defibrillator put in. Um, finally. Uh, after requesting that I have repeated Lyme disease tests sent, the third one finally came back positive in uh, October of 1997, and I flew up <coughs> to New Jersey <coughs> to see a, uh, a Lyme disease expert. And when I was in the airport um, trying to uh, walk rather fast to catch my plane, I suddenly had a funny sensation in my body, as if you know I became dizzy all of a sudden. Um, I heard this buzzing in my ear, which uh, which I didn't really understand at the time, but was the um, defibrillator, was the battery powering up, getting ready to shock me. Wow. And then I was delivered this incredible punch, as if the heavyweight champion of the world punched you from inside your chest, and just completely knocked me to the floor. You know, in the middle of uh, of this busy airport terminal, you know, in Newark, New Jersey, wow. luggage went flying. You know, it was so loud and it was so powerful that I was convinced that everyone around me must have heard what happened. I'm sure that people thought that here's this young guy, you know, suddenly falls to the floor that I must have been drinking in the airport lounge. Yes. Um, you know, thankfully there was an ICU nurse, an intensive care unit nurse, who was sitting in a coffee shop and saw me and she came running out and said, you have a defibrillator, right? I said, yeah. And she said, I, I think you were just shocked. And um, You need to take a um, short... And so, you know, so I was treated for Lyme disease um, uh, with heavy-duty antibiotics for three months intravenous every day. I had an intravenous line placed. I had heavy-duty oral therapy for the last month. I mean, the antibiotics, I'm, a, I'm an oncologist. I know what chemotherapy is like in the doses and the intensity of the antibiotics were, I think, very similar to what my, parent, what my patients experienced, although I didn't lose my hair. But I got my antibiotic treatments in the chemotherapy room every day, sitting side by side with my patients. We each looked at each other. Um, you know, they, I guess they were wondering what the heck I was doing there. Uh, and, you know, I, I, when I started the treatment, I, I thought, wow, you know, this is I'm, this is it. I mean, I'm going to be cured of this. They're going to take the pacemaker out. My heart's going to return to normal. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. We moved to North Carolina in 1998. A year later, um, I started. I was exercising a bit because I was told that uh, although I had a pacemaker defibrillator when I left Miami, my heart function was normal, and I could live a, a normal life and just have the battery changed out every few years. Um, I came to North Carolina with a new job. Our daughter was about six weeks old. Uh, I went to a doctor here at, at Duke and, you know, one of the major top medical centers, uh, asked them how much I could exercise. I was told I needed an echocardiogram to just monitor, to get an idea of what my heart function was at the time before they made any recommendations. 
And 24 hours later, while at work, again, you can imagine this, I have this new job, I get a phone call, uh, and the doctor's on the phone, and they say to me, um, is, there a, is there a chair nearby? Well, you know, I'm an oncologist, I know what that means. And I said, okay. Uh, and they proceeded to tell me that I had 10% heart function, and I needed a transplant immediately. Um, now, you can imagine, I, you know, I'm not feeling that bad at the time. I mean, I'm not running marathons, but I was just starting to get back on my feet, starting to swim a little, starting to very slow jog. Um, and I'm not quite sure how I managed to drive home that day. I mean, I was just just completely distraught. Came into our house, told my wife what was going on. Um, my wife, who in the book, you'll, you know, when you read it, she's the true hero, and for anyone who has a life-threatening disease, Make sure that you have a strong advocate by your side, whether it's you know your spouse, your significant other, your parent, whoever it is. They can be an incredible pillar of strength. Um, and then you know for the ensuing 11 years, I lived with 10% heart function, getting shocked periodically. Um, but I'll tell you that the thing is, and, and the decision I made when I drove home that day after hearing that news. And I'll be honest, after crying for about three hours, I, I made a decision that I could either live my life in pity and say, you know, woe's me and why me and, you know, and just curl up. And I probably would have died shortly thereafter. Or I could have taken control over my life and done exactly what I told my patients. You know, there are things that I can do as a doctor. There are things that I can't do as a doctor. And there are things that you as a patient can take control over, you know positive attitude, exercise, good diet, mind-body, stress reduction, all the things that we know can lead to well-being, you know, suddenly came into my own life. And I realized, okay, I'm not going to let this disease define who I am. I'm going to go on. I'm going to live each day. And whether I live five days, five years, or 50 years, I'm going to try to remember my life as being productive, you know, watch my daughter grow up um, and not look back with regret and anger um, on, you know, whatever amount of time I had. And so, you know, I went off, um, I worked, I developed two cancer drugs uh, from the laboratory to the clinic that were approved, one for pediatric leukemia and one for women with a certain type of breast cancer. I, I traveled the world. I coached my daughter's soccer teams. Um, you know, and, and with the exception of my wife and my cardiologist, people, no one really knew how, you know, sick I was and how at any moment I could have dropped dead very easily. We're going to need to take a short break. I don't want to stop you. You're, you're on a roll and it's amazing. But we need to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, I want to continue your story. And, and we both have some some pretty um, interesting questions to ask you about your experience that brought you to where you are and, and brought this book and as we were talking about off air before we got you on, um, you know, what what was the purpose of this book and why why you were spared? Like you said earlier, there was that that warmth that enveloped you. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit more just after the break. You're listening to Mental Health Matters, Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. We'll be right back. 
Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 20 six years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters on this February 18th. As we said earlier, winter's almost over, at least we're hoping in our neck of the woods. And we got a tremendous guest on our show, Dr. Neil Spector, who survived one of the most horrific encounters you can with a near-death experience. And Neil, you were talking about um, what you went through and something really caught me uh, when you said this hugging warmth sensation. So let me ask you, you said definitely you believe in divine intervention. Uh, You felt that something like that happened. So when you believe folks have these white light experiences because there's now many documented MDs, neurologists that used to say, well, the white light experience is nothing more than random misfirings of the brain. Um, Researchers like McCarley and Hobson back in the 70s and 80s did stuff that it's just random, you know, neuronic misfirings, that kind of stuff. So with that said, you've been there, you've seen it. Now, do you believe like basically you got a glimpse on the other side? Well, I, Peter, you know, fortunately, I never saw the the white light. I experienced the warmth and um, 
you know what I what I thought was um, or what I still believe uh, was was some divine presence um, at moments when uh, there should have been just sheer terror. I've always believed that there's a life after this life. Um, I've been present at enough deaths of patients and seen sort of the incredible peaceful feeling at the moment of death where you could almost um, you could almost feel the spirit lifting out of the body. Um, so I believe that that you know that we're not just our skin and bones and you know calcium and minerals that you know who we are is is more than just neurotransmitters firing off. Um, so I've never uh, I've never had you know any issue with that. I also feel that it's it's not something that needs to be proven to me. I mean this is really faith, and uh, you know and again I'm a scientist. I published in the the top scientific journals, um, but I have no problem believing that you know that there are things, um, there are aspects of this universe and you know God and uh, and, a, and another aspect dimension of life. That I, I'm not sure that we need to, to to prove in you know randomized controlled studies. So, um, so yes, I believe that uh, you know that people do experience you know a white light uh, or something similar and do um, go on to another existence beyond this one. Um, and I do believe that what I experienced, and I experienced it several times, all in moments of sheer terror. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, you know, it, June and July of 2009, um, and I had the transplant in July of 2009, uh, was what I call the month of hell, and I really deteriorated sort of over the spring of, of 2009, leading up to a point in early June when I was hospitalized for what was thought to be a, an infection in the pacemaker. Um, I was admitted to the hospital for literally just an overnight stay, nothing big. They were going to put... A, uh, an intravenous line and to give me antibiotics. I remember calling my wife, who was at the uh, North Carolina Zoo with my daughter for an elementary school trip. Uh, and I said, don't worry, I'm just going in. I'll be back in, you know, in the morning. I'll be out. They're just going to put the line in. So at 3.45 in the morning, I'm in the hospital, and I see that there's a commotion around my bed. And um, uh, I look up at the monitor, the heart monitor, and I'm, I'm in ventricular tachycardia, but it's a bit slower so that the pacemaker defibrillator doesn't recognize it as being abnormal because it doesn't meet the heart rate threshold. Um, I, so here's another example of a physician. I'm a physician. I tell the doctors who are, you know, trainees at, in the middle of three in the morning, there's no attendings there, and I tell them exactly what to do to terminate this. I, you know, I give them the instructions. Uh, and rather than listening to me, they give me um, a bolus, uh, you know, an injection of a drug, which probably nine out of ten times would have been fine, but in the one time, in my case, within 15 seconds of, of getting the medicine intravenously, I feel this horrific warmth going through my body, not a pleasant warmth. Um, and the last thing I remember is they're yelling, you know, take him to the intensive care unit. They're Jeez. running with the bed, you know. And then I wake up, so that's about four in the morning. My wife, who's thinking, I'm just going in overnight, <clears throat> gets a call about five minutes later. Um, you know, in the middle of the, in the early morning, she's woken up. The doctors say, here's what's happening to your husband. She tells them exactly what I told them, you know, 
reprogram the pacemaker, blah, blah, blah. It'll take care of itself. Two minutes later, she gets another call. You have to come to the hospital immediately and, you know, just get here. We can't tell you what's it's going on. Well, that, yeah, no, that's, that's code for your loved one is dying yeah. and you better get here soon. She gets there. Um, there's, you know, I'm completely out of it. I've barely got a blood pressure. You know, I've got, if you've ever seen anyone who has a low blood pressure, you're supposed to put their legs in the air. So my legs are, you know, the bed is tilted all the way up. The physicians, the nurses are all pacing around thinking, you know, that I'm dying, that they've killed me by giving this injection. Um, which, again, it was not necessarily the wrong thing to do. But when a doctor is telling you, here's what you should do, which did not include giving that injection, you would think they would listen to me, right? Well, even though you weren't wearing the white coat, you're still an MD and you've got some knowledge. <laughs> I've got knowledge and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking their lingo, reprogram this, lower the threshold. This has happened before. It'll be okay. <clears throat> So it doesn't get much easier than that for a physician to be told exactly what to do, A, B, C, do this. Um, I finally come to uh, around 10 in the morning, and I'm looking, and there's my wife, and I'm thinking, you know, what are you doing here? And she tells me what had happened. You know, I'd had a seizure. I, you know, I bit my tongue. I had abrasions on my face from, you know, low blood pressure and, again, not getting enough oxygen to the brain. Um, and... Uh, and then this is sort of a surreal experience. They discharge me um, from a near-death experience to uh, 24 hours later, I'm sitting in a restaurant celebrating my daughter's birthday. Now, that's just kind of, uh, you know, you wrap your head around that. I went from I wasn't supposed to live six hours with low blood pressure and 10% heart function. That was a clear exit point for my life. I mean, there was no, if, if I were the doctor looking at me in bed, I would have told my wife, you know, I'm really sorry, but... No one with 10% heart function survives this. I survived it, and I immediately thought, you know, you might have, so my, immediately, my immediate thought was, number one, I survived. Number two, what, what like an amazing heart I have. You know, I've got 10% heart function, and this heart, like, got me through an episode of severe low blood pressure. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, it's not my time. It's really, it's not my time. It's there's, some, there's somebody looking out after me. Well, it's funny and that you mentioned that. that I need to do. Because Dr. Sacco and I have been talking to so many people, Jack Canfield, Karma Spence, people that believe there are no such things as accidents and that everything happens as intended for a purpose. Do you feel that you were spared for a higher purpose? Maybe is it the book? Is it a speaking engagement? What do you feel it is? Um, <clears throat> I yeah, I do, and I you know, and I've had. I've had discussions with people, and I, I, you know, I'm always hesitant about trying to push the nothing happens by accident because I had a discussion with a friend who was in the World Trade Center um, and said to me, you know, how can you explain that? Uh, you know, where people talk about the Holocaust, and how can you explain that? Um, I think there's a, there's a higher purpose for everything. We, we don't know what it is. Um, you know, we're humans. Uh, um, but I think that there is a purpose for everything, and if you believe that this isn't it, that it doesn't all end here, then then you know then life goes on, and um, and and we'll find out what that purpose is at some point. What was I spared for? You know, after the transplant, I've thought about that. Was I spared to to solve the Middle East crisis? You know, you, you think that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Like, why me? You've been given a second chance. Uh... I've been given a second chance. You know, a friend of mine came to me while I was recovering from the transplant and said, 
this is a gift. It, there's no strings attached. It, why you? It's to enjoy your life, to watch your daughter grow up, to be with your wife, to, you know, to literally smell the roses. I happen to think that there's more to it, that, that my story, because I do feel now that there's a different path for me. I mean, I love the research. I love oncology. But I feel like I, I went through this journey um, not to just go back into my lab full-time, but to actually try to help people out who feel like they've fallen through the cracks, to give hope to people, to, you know, to show that perseverance and there are things that we have control over in our lives that physicians can't prescribe that can help you, um, you know, with wellness. And, and as a team effort, I, I never tell people, oh, you know, just don't take your medicines. Or I mean, I did all the things that my doctors wanted me to do. But as a physician, I also know that the medical profession knows very little about what it takes to truly heal. We're very good at treating symptoms. You know, you have a heart problem, we're going to put a pacemaker in. You have high blood pressure, we're going to give you this medicine. You feel depressed, we're going to give you this medicine. But what's the root problem? Why are you depressed? Why do you have high blood pressure? What's going on in your heart? So, you know, there are things that, that we can do as patients, and we need to be our best advocates. I don't care how loving your physician is or where their diploma is from, Harvard, McGill, Stanford, it doesn't matter. You know your body better than anybody else and never let somebody take that power away from you. And so those are the things that I feel like I'm still here to help people, perhaps in a different way. I mean, I've spent my professional career helping people with cancer, you know, one-on-one -on -one as a physician, developing two therapies that, you know, are now approved. I, you know, I've done a lot in my lifetime, and I feel like there, there's another calling in a sense for me. So, Neil, for people uh, picking up your book, which is a tremendous book, I highly recommend um, checking out Gone in a Heartbeat, which just came out, which came out this past uh, Valentine's Week in February 14th. What do you most want people to get from reading your book? Well, I want people to get, I mean, um, one is that you have to advocate for yourself. The medical health care right now is, a, is, is highly technical um, and highly test-oriented, and physicians have less and less time to spend with patients. I mean, people out there know it. You're, you're lucky if you get 10 minutes, um, you know, and, and it, things are so specialized. You go to a cardiologist, they don't just, there's a cardiologist who specializes in echocardiograms. There's a cardiologist who does invasive cardiac caths. There's a cardiologist who specializes in arrhythmias. People are so narrowly specialized that there's, that there's very few healthcare professionals who look out after you as a whole person. Um, we as, as patients, and most of us are going to be patients at some point, um, whether it's life-threatening or not, you've got to maintain control. If you're not looking out after yourself, who is? And so one of the messages that comes out loud and clear is that I'm here today talking to you because I advocated for myself, because I didn't settle for stress as a reason for my problems. If I settled for that, I'd be dead by now. Um, now, people ask me, well, Gene Neal, you're a physician, you're a scientist. Of course you could advocate for yourself. How, do, how are we supposed to know, you know, lay people, how to, how to deal with a physician? The other thing that comes out, and I tell people in this book is, 
if your gut instinct tells you that something's not right and you're not hearing the right message, somebody tells you, oh, it's all stress, it's in your head, and you know, you know what, this is not me, this is not stress, my body is telling me something, go out and get another opinion and don't stop until you feel that you've got an answer or don't stop until you find a physician who may say, you know what, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm not going to rest until I figure it out and I'm going to contact other people, colleagues, whether in my own institution or others, but I'm going to think at night about your problem until we get an answer because, you know, let's, we don't have all the answers. Physician, if I don't, yeah, if I don't know the answer, I'm not just going to attribute it to, to stress or some, or some easy, convenient diagnosis. I'm going to promise that person that I'm going to be with them, you know, whether I figure it out or whether I find somebody else who can figure out, that that's my responsibility to that person. So advocate for yourself. Don't give up your own power to anybody else, regardless of how wonderful their credentials look. Um, and follow your gut instincts. They're there for a reason. Thanks so much, Neil, for joining us. We're uh, off to Thank our break, last break. And the book is Gone in a Heartbeat. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it in Barnes & Nobles. And you can find it probably in your local bookstores. So for more information, um, how should uh, they go about finding it, Neil, if they wanted to get a hold of you for anything or uh, if you do any, any speaking engagements? Sure. Yeah. So let me just add one more thing. Gone in a Heartbeat and then the subtitle, A Physician's Search for True Healing, because unfortunately there's another Gone in a Heartbeat on Amazon. <laughs> so if people want to look for me, they could look for me on my Facebook site or, the, uh, or Gmail, um, Niels, uh, NielsHeart2009 at gmail.com. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Definitely check it out, folks. It is a book that you probably will not put down. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us, and have thank an you. exceptional, wonderful, healthy day and healthy life, my friend. You too. Thanks a lot. And we will have a link on our Facebook uh, page as well as our blog with a link directly to Amazon so you can get the book in your hands and start advocating for yourself. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. You can to Matters of the Mind, everything on your mind that matters to us and stuff on our mind that matters to you. Thank you for joining our show. And tune in next week. We have an exceptional show. We're going to have Nina Gaby, who wrote a great book, Dumped, Stories of Women Unfriending Other Women. Ooh, it's going to be a fun one. <laughs> Catfight. We're going to have women clawing at each other. I don't know. We'll see. But uh interesting show today and looking forward to next week's show as well find dr sacco petersacco.com you can find him on facebook dr peter andrew sacco and of course he's on twitter as well and you connect up with us listen up talk radio on facebook or twitter and be sure to check us out on stitcher radio and itunes podcast if you miss a show catch you right back here next week wednesday at 8 p.m 
You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com, or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no pills. That man is not your man. And that's